Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie, and this is the Mag Culture Podcast. Welcome to our 36th episode, a news special. Our two guests this time each have significant stories to share. First, Rob Orchard, co-founder and editor of Delayed Gratification, the slow news magazine, will be joining me here at the Mag Culture shop. The magazine has just published its 50th edition, a true landmark, cementing its unique position as both indie trailblazer and almost a bridge between indie and mainstream. Then we'll meet Gail Bickler, one of, if not the, most preeminent editorial designers of our time. As design director and now creative director of the New York Times magazine, she has built and managed a team of art directors, designers and more recently coders that has long been the envy of other publishers. In the process, she has won just about every creative award available to her. We'll be talking about her love for print, building and collaborating with the team and the magazine's gradual shift towards digital. But right now, Rob is looking over our shop shelves for some magazines for us to talk about, which gives me the chance to update you on some local news here at MagCulture. First up, our uh, MagCulture Live New York took place last month. As well as the main afternoon of talks, we delved into various aspects of the making of magazines with our series of Mag 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 talks at Vitsu. Two of those conversations are available to watch online now, one featuring Kim Hastreiter, founder of legendary New York magazine Paper, and her young friend and collaborator Myla Libin, publisher of Mishu and Dizzy magazines, and the other conversation featuring Anna Jay from Courier and Roxanne Baer from GQ discussing working with photographers. Mad Culture Live itself is also available to watch on video, albeit behind a paywall. There are some great talks there from the team behind Inc, revealing their second issue, the Courier team introducing their biannual format, the brilliant Chloe Chef and her typography, a host of local indies, plus Deborah Bishop, the creative director behind the remarkable New York Times kids publication, and just one part of Gail Bickler's brilliant team. It's always inspiring being in New York, and even more so when you're surrounded by magazine makers of that calibre. Thank you to all of them, all the speakers. Thank you to our audience, our partners, and especially our generous hosts at Vitsu and Wix Playground. No sooner were we back from the US than attention turned to the London edition of Mag Culture Live, which is planned for autumn this year, so watch out for news on that soon. Meanwhile, the shop itself has been super busy with loads of new arrivals on the shelves as ever. Rob Orchard slept a few, and Rob's just coming in here. Uh, Rob, welcome. Thanks, Jeremy. Very nice to be here. As Lovely always. to have you. Lovely. It's been, it's been a while since we caught up. It has been a fair while, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. But congratulations. I mean, how does it feel to have a magazine in your hands that turns 50? Um, it's, it's good. It's a, little, it's a little bit disingenuous, isn't it? Because it sounds a bit like the magazine's 50 years old. Yeah. And given yeah. that I'm 43. Um, but no, it's 50. It's 50 issues, though. And actually, in indie world... 50 is good. Like 50 issues is a nice solid. That's like 13, coming up for 13 years we'll be going for. Um, It feels really good. Um, There were lots of lovely bits about this particular issue. Uh, My favourite thing being that we've always had an artist on the cover. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had some fantastic ones. We've had had Grayson Perry, Beatrice Milhazes. We've had Ai Weiwei, Shepard Ferry, of course, did our first cover. Mm -hmm. And then he did the one for our five-year and ten-year anniversary. Um, But this is the first time we've ever had our art director, Christian's work, on the cover. And that's been lovely. So actually, we were talking to him and saying, do you know what you should do? You should do the cover for this one. And then we were knocking about lots and lots of different ideas. And what we came up with was, let's do an infographic, because that's one of the big things we've always done. And so we thought, well, how should, we, should we do something that encapsulates everything we've ever done? So we went through from issue one of the magazine, counting up the number of pages that we had attributed to the 12 biggest topics that we've covered. 
um, over the course of that time. And then we made a kind of a proportional representation, which he's called 4,565 days, being the number of days we've been going for. Which is the number of days. So that is, that's 12, 12 and a half years. I did the math. Exactly. It's 12 and a half years. <laughs> it's 12 and a half years, exactly. But, uh, um, which, as, as you, you say, put, puts the lie on, I mean, 50 sounds grander maybe than 12 and a half years. It does, but, but it is yeah. a lovely round number. And as you, as you say, in, in the world of independent publishing, yeah. that is an achievement. It's, it's got to make us, yeah, one of a, a select few, I would have thought. Um, so yeah, it's called 4,565 days, but in the, well, I say the office because we don't have an office anymore, but between us, we now refer to it as the news cabbage because it looks a little bit like a, a beautiful kind of news cabbage. A multicoloured rainbow. A multicoloured rainbow news cabbage. cabbage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a fine cover. The covers are always special, but I, I, I want to, we'll come back to delayed gratification because you have been looking through the shelves. I have. And I having have. established that we had delayed gratification on the shelves, you then moved on to some other I magazines. I did. I'm sorry, I got in a bit of a tears because I thought it was hidden beneath some other magazines, but it wasn't. It had its own little bit it, on the it shelf. It did, it did. Of what course. A what a prune I am. Um, so yeah, the first one that I picked up was Offscreen, which um, is an old favourite of mine and I was glad to see that it's still around. It's set up by this guy, Kai, who has his fingers in all sorts of different magazine pies. He's done all sorts of interesting things. Does, yeah, yeah. And I just thought that from the very beginning it was such a good idea for a magazine, a magazine that's about the human side of technology. It's got kind of such a clear niche. It's got so many interesting people that it could speak to, and it does, um, at this intersection of technology with you know, art and psychology and business and all of these different things. And then it, it's always had this, this nice approach to the commercial side of it, which is it gets good support um, from interesting people and it's, it's got these ads in the middle that are very kind of beautifully done. They feel part of the magazine. They're very kind of, I was going to say inoffensive, but they, they feel kind of legitimate and it all kind of goes together. And that, that's, that's not something you often see. That format of advertising, I, th I th think I'm right in saying they kind of, I think they pioneered they, it. They yes. pioneered it, and it's yeah. subsequently become something a lot of indies do. Yes, definitely. Or try to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that works really, really well. So I was really glad to see that going, and that's something that I want to get my teeth so, stuck and, into. And, and that one, that, that's issue 24, and I think, so that's, you know, that, that gives a set. I mean, 24 is a good number, but it just, again, emphasises how powerful 50 is. Yes, which be, it's, a long, it's a long old time to keep going. And I guess I've always wanted to do, this is going to sound a little bit, like not morbid, but a little bit magazine morbid, which is I've often wanted to approach you for a roster of all of the titles that you've carried at Mag Culture. And I want to see what the attrition rate is mm -hmm. because my strong instinct is that you have a lot of magazines, not you personally, but there are a lot of yeah. independent magazines that start out super strong with mm -hmm. issue one, like yeah. blow people who are amazing, have a tricky issue two, there's a long delay before issue three, and then it just drops off a cliff. Yeah. And it yeah. may be because they were never meant to be long-term projects or you know they were just an experiment, or they didn't find their niche, or whatever it might be. But th there's that thing of isn't it? You come into mad culture, and you're like, oh my god, this scene is so vibrant, it's so amazing. But I would love to know, you know, what the drop-off rate is. And I would love to be able to tell you <laughs> beyond the kind of like a uh, uh, general sort of anecdotal sense. But actually, I, th I I I think there are far less than you might imagine. Of course, it does happen. Of course, people do come up against it. And I want to talk. And I know you had your. Um, you know, the early days, it was it was tough for oh, you yeah. delayed gratification. But but um, you know, there are those points at which you think, oh, can I carry on? Um, especially, I think a lot of magazines, very at variance with what you're doing, haven't really gone down the kind of we're going to set up a business route. Right. You know, they yeah. are they are uh, projects of 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 passion of, of you know yes. uh, side gigs, whatever yep. you want to call yep. them, um, and that can be very much you know that can be a big struggle to, to maintain. Yeah, definitely. But, but, but my sense, I think before I had the shop, I probably would have agreed with you that an awful lot of them come and go. And that's, right. But actually, 
It's less than you think. That's of great. course it does happen, but there are a lot of them do carry through. Yeah, that's fantastic. Ah, oh, lovely. And the next magazine you've selected there is uh, is Cakezine. That's right. So I I found out this uh, about this magazine through through my Stack subscription, and I was reading it on the train here, and a line got me because. Um, well, I mean, this is a brilliantly well-written magazine, but there was a line that was, and it's very early on in the editor's letter. So it says, uh, and it is about cake. It's right? about cake, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So this this um, issue is about um, pie, and it starts about the humble pie. It's fascinating, and he says, "Yes, we all love cake, but the outrageous fame and fortune of running a small, independent, dessert-focused magazine was getting to our heads." I was like, "That's lovely. That's beautiful writing, and that's very, very funny." And then so I, it made me engage with the rest of the magazine. And it was so nice, so full of exactly that sort of style of self-deprecating, funny, intelligent, um, imaginative uh, content. And I, I think, you know, I think I will be, I don't know if they take subscriptions, but I will be subscribing if they do. Another magazine you picked was Adbusters, Adbusters which uh, must so be this is, this number is, 167. These are so. like, these are these guys have been going since the late 80s, I yeah, think, Adbusters. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't picked up a copy for ages. And... I just, it's such a powerful magazine because it's such an angry magazine. And I like that. You know, it's, it's got that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that sort of puts into words the feelings that you get when you wake up at two in the morning and you can't sort of sleep. It's, it's you know, like the world is burning and nobody's doing anything about it. And we're all just still buying into lifestyles uh, that are being endorsed by people that we admire that are completely unsustainable if they were extrapolated out to yeah. kind of a global level. So that's, you know, that's one of these things. And, you know, this kind of, this very well-considered mix of spoof ads and then, you know, these, these the kind of almost philosophical sections. And I'm so glad that it's still going and I'm so glad that they're still angry and it couldn't be more relevant um, these days. I mean, this one's talking about uh, China and it's talking about oppression and um, what it means to live in one of the most surveilled places in the world. And it's it's raw and it's beautiful and it's, I, I really want to get stuck into it properly. It's fascinating to me how they managed to maintain that anger. Yes. You know, without burning out. I mean, yes. But yes, I, I'm fully behind you in terms of I'm so glad it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wish more people would pay attention to it. Yes, it's. I mean, it's, it's like, it's one of the few magazines, few independent magazines that I would say I think is important. Um, as well as being kind of beautiful and intriguing mm -hmm. and whimsical and lovely and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's not whimsical at all, but, you know. <laughs> it, it makes an intriguing um, sort of uh, contrast to what you do at Delayed Gratification. Right. Because you, you, I was just consulting, because uh, you mentioned the front cover of, yes. of your issue, and there is actually a key to the different colours and, and scents. And um, the nearest section, there's the number of categories. The, the, the biggest category is global, global economics, society and politics. Yes, that's probably the, enough, the yeah. smallest category is war. Right. But there in the middle somewhere, 8.7%, well, one, two, three, five down is environment and energy, which is perhaps the nearest thing to what Adbusters is talking about. Yes. Um, I don't know what we draw from that, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess there are, you know, we, we're sort of fishing in a, a similar sort of pool, I suppose, because we're both talking about, and obviously they have a much more, like, storied history, but um, we're talking about we're talking about what's actually happening in the world. Um, we're looking outwards rather than inwards. We're going out to try to find out what's happening. Um, we invest in that a lot. You know, actually, we, we spend thousands of pounds on individual stories. We send people to difficult places for a protracted period of time, and we get very, very worried about them, and then we... You know, spend weeks and weeks editing and legaling and working. You know, like working with what they bring us back. 
And I suppose that's a bit of a kind of a point of difference mm -hmm. with a lot of independent magazines mm -hmm. is that actually that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be super, super ambitious in terms of actually reporting what's, what's kind of going on out there. It's interesting you mentioned that because in my intro earlier in, in the podcast, I, I, I talk about delayed gratification as kind of being, well, on the one hand, a, a trailblazer in the indie scene, but also a kind of bridge between indie and mainstream. And wh 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 how do you see the magazine position? I think bridge is a very nice way of, of putting it. It could be, it could also be sort of seen as a crevasse, I suppose. Like, there's, there's sort of like, there's points of difference. So I suppose... Some of the things that we do that a lot of independent magazines don't do is we have always tried to we have always tried to impose some sort of business focus on this, as in like make it a functioning business. Now, to be fair, we started this magazine um, with the airiest, fairiest ideas of the subscription numbers we'd get, of what the business, how the business model would work, all that sort of stuff. We started it like almost everybody else starts an independent magazine, which is with a B in our bonnet, like just wanting to make this thing, wanting it to get out there in the world, not really thinking beyond issue two. But then I suppose what we have done is we've really tried to do that. So, I mean, one thing that keeps coming up when I talk to people who make independent magazines is subscriptions. And I've always thought it's impossible to build a long-term independent magazine if you don't take subscriptions. You have to take that from the mainstream. There's a reason that they do that. It's money that comes in that you can build on. And it means that if you have a cover that people don't like or you have distribution problems or whatever, then you know, you're not trying to make all of your money just from the newsstand, which is really difficult to do anyway. Um, so there's things like that, I suppose. Uh, our design, I think, is probably. I think our design is incredibly beautiful. I think it's probably more structured than a lot of independent magazine design. Um, so you know, our designer comes from like a, a background of of making mainstream magazines, and he's also got this um, amazing brain uh, for design because he's uh, he's a kind of trained architect as well. So I suppose there's that. There's and then there's the coming out. Like I was going to say exactly on time which is absolutely not the case but we do it's always four times a year yeah, yeah. but it's not you know like so i suppose there's things like that trying to be a bit more disciplined about it which kind of boils down to me it sounds like structure because yeah because the, i mean i know uh, you're absolutely right about subscriptions of course that, yeah. that that is that is the bedrock of of publishing per se let alone yeah. independent publishing uh, and it, if it's become increasingly important yeah, it's not receding that is yeah. that is the key to it all isn't it but i also know a lot of independent magazines smaller ones are reluctant to get involved in that because it involves commitment in terms of well, yes. we're doing two issues a year can we guarantee or it's going to be late and yes what do we do if we're late yes. and somebody doesn't get a copy and so it's, it boils down you know everything you say makes sense but if if, if you haven't got the team around you to do it, it's a struggle. It is a massive struggle. And, and you know, our, our experience was exactly that of it being very hand-to-mouth for many years and trying desperately to sort of, you know, move forward a little bit at a time in, in all of these different areas. But we're also, you know, we're not a mainstream magazine insofar as we don't make any money out of advertising. So we can't afford to sell magazines for just kind of a few pounds. Mm -hmm, that's, of course, mm -hmm. sort of 12 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we are trying to sort of compete in the same spaces as they are at Smith and Son. But because we only come out quarterly, we are just, we don't quite fit into the moulds that yeah. a lot of the distribution companies have have sort of set up and, and the Smiths and all these different people. So we slightly fall in, in the middle, I mm -hmm. think. I think we're sort of a magazine with independent sensibilities that all also wants to be like a, a, a sort of a medium-sized, you know, like a, a mainstream, in air quotes, magazine. But but across those 12 and a half years, the, I mean, the, the magazine has grown, right? It's, yes. It's developed. Yes. And, and so what must have seemed like a very sort of small independent startup is now much more cohesive. Yes. Presumably there's more people on board. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We've got, we've got more people, we've got um, more subscribers, we can do more, you know, ambitious things, and we're not, 
you know, wondering about how we're going to pay the next print bill, which for for many years we were. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of that's lovely. That's delightful, right? So, but that's twelve and a half years yeah, in yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, when you started, how long yeah. did you think that would take? Oh, like two, three issues or something. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, we it's you know. I just like unbelievable naivety looking back on it. And actually all of the people that we all set this up together, we'd all worked in a lot of mainstream magazines before. So we weren't daft, but we hadn't worked on the commercial side. We only mm-hmm. had worked on the editorial side. So we could make a good magazine and we, we were sure about that. Um, but to actually do all of the stuff that goes along with it, the marketing, the subscriptions, the management, the VAT, the the distribution, all of these different things, we had to learn it on, on the job. Mm-hmm. And... We did do, I'm like ashamed to admit it, but we did do that thing that absolute, you know, idiots always do when they try to set up a business where they're like, right, so the population of the United Kingdom is like 67 million. <laughs> so we only need to get like 0.1% and we'll be rolling in it sort of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I think this, this is the thing with business plans people always get confused by. It's, it's just a plan. You've got to have some structure in place. Exactly. You're never going to get it right. Exactly. But, but have a plan, a plan and then yeah. you've got something to measure against. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, it might it might be completely unrealistic. But listen, I feel we've jumped right ahead, but I just want to pull back, just in case anybody's listening and doesn't know what delayed gratification does and what it stands for, just give me a very, very quick pricey of what the magazine's about. So delayed gratification is a quarterly news magazine that was launched in 2011 with an idea of providing an antidote to knee-jerk 24-7 media coverage. Um, so we were seeing at that time that stories were being reported so fast that journalists had no time to really work out what was going on. So this is a magazine that returns to big stories um, after the dust has settled and asks the question of what happened next. So the issue 50, which came out uh, about three weeks ago, covers January to March of this year. So it looks back on the big events. So, for example, a classic story for us would be the earthquakes in um, southern uh, Turkey and northern Syria. So we had one of our journalists who was in Istanbul on the day that uh, the, the the earthquakes happened and she set out and she travelled around the country and she saw what was happening and she came back with this extraordinary reportage. And then she went back, crucially, two months later and talked about what was happening in the aftermath, the political games that were being played, um, the, uh, the, the desperation to try to get things cleared up before the election, all of these promises that were being made. And she, she brought back this fascinating 6,000-word read with extraordinary f- photos that nobody else was reporting on anymore because it was old news, it was dead news. But of course... What you, what you get in our current news cycle is the beginning of stories over and over and over again. You get the beginning of stories, but very rarely do you get anybody following up and, and saying what happened next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that's, you know, that's a unique position, isn't it? It genuinely is a... So there's, there's you know, I, people have often in, in, um, in other titles have often done kind of follow-up stories. So, for example, you know, like The Atlantic, The New Yorker, you know, um, any of the kind of the big uh, Sunday supplements, all, all of these things have done that. But I think we remain the only magazine that's dedicated to doing just mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you're very proud of it. I mean, you, you, yes. you boast about the slow journalism and the, there's a tagline you have, last to break news. Last to break news, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But despite the kind of slow nature of it, of course, it's very, I'm sure, adrenaline-based. It's, it is news. Yes. And, and you know... The, I've met enough journalists and people over the years to know that you can get addicted to that and you, there's the sort of the pumping adrenaline the, the 
do you still i mean 12 and a half years later do you still have that on a, on, on on a quarterly basis with the magazine do you still get is it still exciting how do you keep it exciting i, do, I the the wonderful thing about this magazine about this company this so journalism company is that i don't need to try it's just it is exciting i work exclusively with people that i respect and that i like very much and uh we spend a lot of our time trying to get you know like trying to get fantastic stories and we get very excited about bringing them to each other so each you know copy of the late gratification has got maybe kind of you know 30 40 individual stories some of them quite small some of them sort of massive great big stories and we just love talking about them thinking about treatments and working on them and because the news always changes and because there's any number of different treatments you can do, you can do kind of reportage, you can do photo features, you can do graphic journalism, you know, you can do single person interviews, there's all sorts of lovely things. It doesn't get boring. And I'm always excited about the stories that we've got in the next one. And we always think our next issue, that's going to be our best issue so far. So it's lovely. And it's over the course of three months. And of course, as anybody who works through a deadline knows, sort of the pattern, you know, whether it's you're working on a sort of a weekly or a kind of a monthly or a quarterly or whatever, is, oh, God, the magazine's gone to press. You know what, let's do it. Let's do it properly this time. Let's be really organised and we'll just do this and let's, you know, we'll be talking about ideas and drinking coffee and having fun. And then you know that, regardless of your intentions, regardless of like what's gone before, the last week will always be a mad, mad rush and the wheels will be coming off and things will be on fire. That has always been the thing. And mm-hmm. then, you know, like followed, followed by... So it's quite a strange way to live your life. And it does sort of consume... It sort of pushes you through your life quite quickly. Um, but no, I love it. I, I, I absolutely love making delay gratification. It's a wonderful way to spend your time. What do you know about your readers? That's a really good question. Um, we know very little about our readers. And um, we, we almost used to turn that into sort of a, a point of difference, like a positive point of difference, which is when we're not trying to sell adverts, so it's not really relevant to us, you know, who they are. We're not trying to appeal to a particular demographic. And there's danger there as well, because I have worked on magazines in the past where there's been a very specific demographic and you've had to sort of tailor stories in order to fit a kind of particular person. I don't think that's how the best magazines are made. I think that the best magazines are made by editors and journalists who write the magazine that they want to read. So that's what we've always done. That said... We have become aware in recent years that one of the like the fundamental things about marketing to the world and trying to tell them about your product is to know who is likely to be able to buy this. So we're, we're having, you know, like 12 and a half years in, we're having conversations about how we might do that. We've done a couple of reader surveys before. Um, the way that I suppose that I do, the thing that I do know about my readers is when we have events and they come. Uh-huh. And, uh, they... T- t- tell us about those events. Yeah, so we've done so many things over the years. So we do lots of classes. We used to do them in person, now we do them online. So we do how to be a features writer, how to launch an independent magazine, how to make infographics and things like that. Uh, we've done slow journalism nights. We had, so in January 2020, we had this brilliant event where um, Ian Hislop agreed to be interviewed for a night called uh, Satire in the Age of Trump and Johnson. And it was amazing because, you know, it being Ian Hislop, the tickets sold out in a few minutes. Whereas before we'd always had some, Mm. you know, like pushing and pushing over weeks and weeks and weeks. And we didn't really know what to do with ourselves. All these, you know, people getting in touch, can I have tickets? Oh my goodness, amazing. And we got... A, uh, we got a gin company to come along and give people gin cocktails. We took over this beautiful space in Somerset House and we designed all the walls with these great big uh, posters of Trump and Johnson and quotes from them and so on. It was great. It was a great night. It was fantastic. And at the end of the night, I remember saying to people, you know, 
This is just the first in a new series of Slow Journalism Nights. We're going to be doing one every couple of months. You're going to love it. Thank you so much, Ian, for being at the inaugural one. <laughs> and then obviously, bang, the world closed up. Yeah. And we've done none of those big ones since then. Uh-huh. But yeah. when I have met them, I mean, uh, I, just, I just really like them. They sort of seem to be well, like... That's good. <laughs> this is the thing, like, they seem to be sort of the readers that like straight from central casting, like intelligent, engaged good-looking, just lovely, interesting people um, that uh, that is absolute pleasure to kind of get to know. Um, and men, women, older, younger? I think there's a lovely, there's a lovely mix. Mm. And we get so many, well, so many, we get a nice number of people getting in touch and saying nice things. And so we've actually got a spreadsheet somewhere mm-hmm. that we kind of keep just people's nice comments. So people saying, for example, that they have bought this magazine for their kid who's going off to university and they've said to the kid, like, you don't read the newspapers, maybe you'll read this. Or they bought it for a pal who's just retiring and, you know, they've got a bit more time on their hands, whatever it is. Um, I remember getting one from um, a lady who was uh, pregnant and she was saying that it was great because it, it meant that she could kind of catch up on the news in between times when she had like a couple of minutes here and there. So I think a, a broad range of people. And we do try not to be partisan. So, you know, there's there's no way to be completely objective. And obviously everybody comes who writes for the magazine comes to it with their own particular like political um, ideas. But actually we, we strenuously try to have like a variety of voices in there. So on. that said, we did get called... We did get called Nazis the other day, which was a bit of you know a bit of a surprise to us. Somebody cancelled saying kind of we were Nazis. Yeah, because we. I mean, like you need the whole gamut. You yeah, need yeah. To, so like also we've been told that we are um, whinging uh, namby pamby liberals as well. So as long as you've got that balance, you're all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do Do you think? I mean, you mentioned the the Ian Hislop event and and the satire in the age of Trump and Johnson or whatever. Um, there, and you may also in, in the same couple of sentences later you mentioned the pandemic. Do, has those extraordinary events that have happened? And latterly in your 12 and a half years, but nonetheless, um, in, in, in America with Trump, uh, the pandemic, uh, the Me Too. I mean, there's been, there's been a lot of big headline, Black Lives Matter, a lot of big headline things that have really cut through and become issues. Do you think that's helped you as a news magazine in this period? A hundred percent it has. So I remember when we started, we had um, WikiLeaks happened in our first issue. We had to reorder our first issue because this was happening as we were kind of going through and planning it. And we thought, wow, we'll never have like a news event like this again. WikiLeaks, amazing. And then um, a couple of issues later, um, no, actually the next issue, it was really uh, the Arab Spring, the beginning of the uh-huh. Arab Spring. And then there was a tsunami in Japan. And there's really not been any let up in these things that feel like they really kind of knocked the world off its axis a bit, you know, like so the the you know, Brexit and Trump and Johnson and just any number of different massive great big things that have happened, and of course, um, the pandemic. It's been good for us in terms of there's always been good stuff, to, interesting things to write about. Um, not always good for us personally, I suppose. Um, and also, I think it's been good because I think the more that more the time has gone on, the more intense that news coverage has become, the more parlous the state of the world, the more that it makes sense for people to reach for something slower, more considered, that's not kind of, you know, trying to sell them anything, that's not partisan, that's not filtered through their smartphone, that's also, you know, driving them mad because they're completely addicted to it. So I think that's been useful to us as well. Like uh-huh. the, the more that the world declines, 
you know, the more that people like to turn for turn for like comfort and information and what, to a trusted more source. source. I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. Which well, that, that's I mean, because that again reflects the mainstream business of the news weeklies. Yes. The Economist, yep. the New Yorker. These yep. magazines are all seeing their yes. Whether, whether it's in digital or print, their their readership increase. Yes. Yes. Well, so this is a time when when you pick up your phone, you entered completely uncharted territory. So actually, there's any number of people who are spreading misinformation because you know they're they're misguided and they're putting sort of nonsense out there there's any number of people spreading disinformation a lot of it is geared up and you know in a guise that's supposed to make it look like it's from a, a respected publication and so on and the big publications the big news organizations are all laying people off still you know there's fewer and fewer journalists mm-hmm. at those big daily newspapers covering more and more ground and of course you know that's that's not a recipe for the sort of coverage that you necessarily want Looking back over those 50 issues, what is there any particular highlight? I mean, we've been just talked through some of the big news stories, but is there any particular highlight in terms of the magazine itself? There's been some wonderful, wonderful moments. Yeah, some lovely things. So I think that uh, that event with Ian Hislop, that was a lovely moment where we felt, yep, fantastic, we're mm-hmm. really doing something big and exciting here. Uh, we've had a series of sort of spin-off things from the magazine. So one of them was uh, we made a beautiful book of infographics because we had infographics in the magazine. Beautiful book of infographics called An Answer for Everything with Bloomsbury. And so I got to go to speak at the Hay Festival about it last year. And it's, uh, it's the closest that I'll ever get to feeling like a rock star. Um, it was so nice. I went to the event and did a nice talk and talked all about it. And then afterwards, they make you wait back for sort of five minutes and they lead you over to a table, which is piled high with your books uh, for people to, to get them signed. I was like, There's no, nobody's going to be there. Oh, it's going to be so embarrassing. Nobody's going to be there. I turned up and there were loads of people there. Mm-hmm. And I spent an hour doing kind of nice uh-huh. signatures and stuff. I was like, yeah, this is brilliant. Uh-huh. So there's been a load of moments like that. Like, you know, when we got the first issue back from the press and we're all there in this tiny, tiny little um, office in the old timeout building in Tottenham Court Road. So Tony Elliott, who was always a great uh, uh, um, supporter of the magazine, I'm sadly no longer with us. Um, and he gave us an incredibly uh, cheap rate, this tiny, tiny little office on the first floor. And so kind of taking the first magazines back there and got any number of things like, you know, like anytime we landed an artist that we were really excited about for the front cover, or we got a journalist back safely from somewhere really interesting and we were sitting on the story mm-hmm. and think, this mm-hmm. is going to be mm-hmm. just, it's going to be absolutely massive. So yeah, lots of things. And then lots of this kind of drumbeat of just working with, some very talented people. I mean, any time that I give an idea to our art director uh, for an infographic and Marcus, my co-editor, and I, we tend to sort of scribble out a little sketch and then we hand it over to him. And a week later, he comes up with this beautiful, perfectly realised thing with loads of extra flourishes on it. And all of that just just mm-hmm. makes life worth living, I think. So you still, you still obviously get a real buzz from the actual oh, making of the magazine. 100%, yeah, I really do. I love it, yeah. You know, we've talked a number of times over the years, and then it always, that buzz you have from it always comes across. And yeah. You always seem very upbeat and positive, and so it leads me to ask, what gets you down? What, what, what? Wow, that's a. I think so. The state of the world gets me down. Mm-hmm. It, it really, it really does. And I think the older that I get, and I've got um, three little kids now. And I just sort of look at the, the sort of the direction things are going. And I look at politicians still somehow able to, to score points by saying that they are, you know, on the side of drivers or they're going to, you know, like get rid of this green crap or whatever it is. It's just like, oh, come on. I mean, what's, what's happening? Like, what? So, and it's, it's also the, the realisation that you yourself are um, almost entirely powerless in this. 
Um, so that sort of stuff, you know, and I, I, one of the things that we look for in the magazine a lot is because we deal with some, some pretty serious and tragic themes, we're always looking for that element of redemption, that element of light at the end of the tunnel. And quite often that comes from underdog stories, from people fighting back. We're always looking for the kind of the human side. But also um, it comes from science, technology. That's the sort of thing that I think... I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Like, so actually that restores my faith in humanity. That while at one sort of side of the world, people are effectively engaging in trench warfare um, in, you know, this most kind of unpleasant and bloody war, in, in other parts of the world, they are coming up with these innovations that could just, could just pull us back from the sort of the, the brink of ecological disaster. And that sort of stuff is is super exciting to me. I love talking to all of these people. Who are, you know, I went to a... Not not saying that this is you know a, a grand answer, but I went to a vertical farm the other day for a story for issue fifty, and that blew my mind. Walking mm-hmm. around there, looking at the technology that they're bringing to bear, that means that they can produce you know fifteen crops in a year of a crop that normally you would get three or four from in the field, and that they can you know I mean obviously it's very energy intensive at the moment, um, but that they can control the environment so you get the very 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 best product, and you can do it anywhere. You know that there's vertical farms here in London. Um, there's one um, under Clapham Common in an old um, uh, air raid shelter, and they're growing things under there. So this sort of stuff, you know, restores my faith, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it's important to emphasise that. I mean, we've been concentrating on the big news stories, which ten- tend to be yeah. earthquakes and yes. disasters, and whatever. but there, there's a lot of there's a lot of culture and yeah. films, and there's there's some humour. There's the celebrity tree count. Yes, tell us a bit about that. Right. So celebrity tree count was an idea that I sat on for about three years trying to work out how to make it happen. And then um, uh, our, our, our former um, associate editor, uh, Luce, who we used to work with, who's absolutely wonderful, um, she, she worked out how to do it. And basically, we wanted to do something that captured the futility of celebrity magazine culture. And the fact that, I mean, you, I mean I'm guessing now, maybe it's all written by AI, God alone knows. But so you basically take some of the kind of the daftest celebrity stories that there are, and then you work out the amount of paper that they take up in uh, the celebrity uh, magazines. And then you perform this calculation that enables you to just about work out how many trees it took to bring you that story. So, for example, um, there was this great story in Heat, which was... James Corden filled up his car with petrol. That was literally it. It was a photo of James Corden filling up his car with petrol, and we worked out that 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 cost a tree. Um, Vicky Patterson used an inflatable neck pillow on a recent flight. That was a tree. Vanessa Feltz may look into online dating at some point in the future. That's two trees from Closer. Mary Berry doesn't wish to live to be as old as her mother. Ben and Jennifer Affleck may be building a a big house. That's a five-tree. Maybe. Maybe. This is the thing. My favourite one, my absolute, the absolute height of this for me was a few years ago and it was um, Bruce Forsyth got his coat stuck in a car door. And I was like, this is, you know, like, this is amazing. If the planet survives and there are humans in 200 years, they'll look back on this period and be like, what on earth was going on? This is absolute <laughs> madness. Yeah. Well, it's one of my favourite infographics and regular features oh, that's in the good, magazine. that's good to hear. Because, yeah. but, it, but it's important to emphasize the, 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 those kind of aspects, which are still serious and intent, but... Yeah. Leaven the, the the some of the serious, more serious um, reporting. Well, you know better than most that the magazine's got to have an ebb and flow. It's got to have light and shade. Mm-hmm. It can't all just be, you know, ten pages of how awful everything is in Yemen, followed by ten pages of how awful everything is in Ukraine. You've got to, you know, you've got to kind of pull people in. You've got to give them a moment to breathe. And so we try to use the infographics and the cartoons as that. But also the other thing I think about magazines is the people like regulars. 
you know, I'm really interested in the way that people consume magazines. Quite often they'll flick from the back, so you always want something on the back page that really kind of grabs people. But they'll also look for their little kind of regular. So my my absolute favourite magazine, apart from my own, is um, is Private Eye. And I, having read it since I was about 11, I consume it in a very particular way. You know, I'll go to the, the kind of funnies mm-hmm. and then I'll mm-hmm. go to Streets of Shame and then I'll go to In the Back. And, you know, I've got my, I've got my rhythms with it. And I think people like that. It's reassuring. Yeah. And it's something that actually I don't see so much in a lot of other independent magazines. It's because they're so brimming with ideas. They've got so many things to kind of put out there. Then the idea, but maybe it's also a function of, you know, not not necessarily thinking that this is going to be a, like a twelve and a half year project. And actually, you don't you don't need regulars if you're not going to do that. I absolutely agree about the regulars. That that's an important part of, part of the kind of culture of magazines. But I think it's a it's a double purpose. It's for the reader. Yeah. But I think it's also for the producer. That's true. And I think something like um, Private Eyes uh, fortnightly, and it's just they've got to get it done. They have to have these yes. these buckets. To yes, fill. you do. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and that's not to dismiss it as being, you know, when I say du- buckets to fill, it's not. Being, <laughs> I hope that's not sounding dismissive. It's but, not but, with but, 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 but they kind of, you know, you have to have these sections that are, you know are going to happen. Yes, you, you do. haven't got time to invent something. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yeah, and it does. I mean, actually, so I think we we touched on it earlier, didn't we? Structure, mm-hmm. and that works both ways as well. So. I think, God, I spend far too much time thinking about magazines. I really have devoted my life to thinking about magazines. But I think navigation is very, very important. I think being able to work out where you are in a magazine mm-hmm. and kind of like get a, a, about the place. Um, well, well, I mean, um, you've got the ultimate structure, haven't you? You've got, you've got yes, a chronology. That's the thing, chronology. Yeah, so yeah. it's so nice. So you can just kind of work through. But you know, for years and years and years, we didn't have page numbers because we thought that we were really kind of being iconoclastic and so on. And you got to a certain point, we had this meeting with our art director. He's like, look, I, I want to do the redesign. And I'm just thinking about putting in page numbers. They were like, page numbers? What the <laughs> fuck is this? This is outrageous. This is like the you know, fall of Rome Boring, or whatever. boring. Yeah, I mean, page numbers with page numbers. And then actually we put in page numbers. They were like, oh yeah, this makes it so much easier for people to find <laughs> the stories that they wish to read. We're asking far too much of the reader to navigate completely by date. So yeah, so I think structure, it's reassuring to the reader and it's, it makes it, it puts a box around it, right? So that's the other thing is creativity adores a box, you know, like, because actually if it's, if it could be anything, then it's so difficult to make it, but it's not. You need a balance of articles from, you know, the three months that you're covering and then you need some funny ones and you need some serious ones. You need some in-depth reportage and you need some photo features. And actually that makes it so much easier. And then you can sort of, you know, you can, be innovative I suppose within that but actually having the box around it is useful when, when you describe it like that it makes absolute sense but it also leads me to the to the kind of assumption that you are all together in one office with a big wall and you've got printouts for the magazine and, and, and you're working out step by step by step but we were talking before this conversation and you said since the pandemic you've all been working remotely that's, that's right and yeah. that's working yeah um, so h- how do you sort of get a sense of the overview yes so uh, that's a very good question and so for years and years we were all in an office and I definitely think that when you're starting a magazine you have to be physically in the same space together and we did that we had minis up on the wall and we could move them around and stuff like that the nice thing about uh, the mag is that the group of people that run it have all been there since the beginning so we all now are so used to working with one another and so kind of into the groove of working with one another but actually, we can do things remotely. And also the technology is there in a way that it, it wasn't really even kind of pre the pandemic. So actually, we have some quite kind of good systems for working together, for running flat plans together and stuff like that. And then we also talk a lot. So, you know, my co-editor Marcus and I will be on Zoom 
with each other sort of four four hours out of eight in the working day, kind of coming up with ideas, tweaking, like editing in real mm-hmm. time, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then we do meetups. And actually, that works out quite nicely as well. So instead of, you know, instead of seeing each other every day, you see each other once every two weeks and it's quite a fun thing. We meet up in London, we go for a nice lunch, maybe go for a pint afterwards, come up with loads and loads of ideas and then go away and, and try to execute them. And that works, I think, in the main, very well. So for me in particular... It means that I don't have to commute to London on a on a kind of super expensive train, and that I can be a better father. I hope, you know, so I can sort of you know, stop work and then immediately go and, and try and uh, do some fun stuff with my kids. Um, and yeah, I think it kind of works out quite mm-hmm. well. But you do, you're right. You do miss something, and you have to you have to artificially recreate in some ways that that thing that you'd have got in the office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, listen, Rob, thank you for joining us. Oh, my absolute us. pleasure. It's thank always you for a pleasure me. to talk to you. And uh, I love talking about magazines, and you, and you clearly love it as well. So, I do. Um, I do. It's my Achilles heel magazines. <laughs> it's not an Achilles heel. What's the, what's <laughs> what's the, the opposite, what's the opposite of an Achilles heel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, cheers. Good to yes, see you. Very good to see you. Thank All you. All the best. After this quick break, we head to New York and meet Gail Bickler. London Printers Park Communications play a key part in the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers turn their dreams into reality. Noble Rock, Soho House, Objection, Motor Dance Journal are just four of the magazines on our shelves that give a sense of what Park can achieve. Very different magazines, but all beautifully produced. As well as high creative standards, Park are also fully committed to producing your magazine in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner. Buy a copy of their sustainable print guide from the MagCulture shop or download a free copy of the same file from the Park website. Search Park Communications. Just like MagCulture, Park love magazines and we're very proud to have them sponsor the MagCulture podcast. Now, I've long wanted to invite Gail Bickler to take part in our podcast and while in New York last month, I caught up with her and realised now was the moment. The New York Times magazine continues to fly high, but they never sit on their laurels and are about to start work on the next stage of its development. I spoke to Gail recently on Zoom. Gail, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're working from home today, I think. Yeah, I'm at home. Um, My team works uh, in the office uh, Monday through Wednesday, and then Thursday and Friday we're working from home. Uh uh Uh, And we're recording this at the end of a week, so it's Friday afternoon. and the next issue of the New York Times magazine will be uh, out with the newspaper on Sunday, right? Yes. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in this sort of the, the weekly production schedule. It obviously doesn't all happen in a week. But th- but this issue that comes out on Sunday was in production when? How, how long ago were you actually making that issue? We shipped it about nine days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's just the amount of time that it takes at our printer. Um, but so we weren't working on it last week, but we were working on it the week before. Mm-hmm. Where are you today? You're working on the one that comes out on, in two weeks' time? It comes out, uh, it, it doesn't come out this Sunday, it comes out next Sunday. Okay. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, Did I yeah. even get the math right on what I just told I, you? I think that works. <laughs> okay. So nine days, yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and presumably, the, the reality of it is that you're not working on one issue and then you finish it and you start the next one. They They all overlap and they get, you know, you're doing, you're finishing off one while you're starting another, and you're planning the one for next month. And yes, they do all overlap, um, particularly in terms of figuring out the art treatments, um, and also with the special issues. We tend to work out pretty far ahead on those. Sometimes 
um, you know, a few weeks. Sometimes uh, we actually start the planning for those oftentimes months earlier. Um, and then the uh, final execution does happen within a week. But, you know, oftentimes when we get there, we have a, a pretty developed design that we're working with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of those special issues happen at the same time each year, right? Yes. Uh, and for a while, we were doing a lot of the same kinds of special issues at the same time of year. We do, we've changed it up some recently. Um, and we still do some issues that, you know, come out um, every year at the same time, like our lives they lived issue, which comes out at the end of the year. Um, but more recently, we've been doing fewer special issues um, that are, are spread out a little bit more. Um, like, for example, we just did uh, an issue on the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Um, and that was time to the anniversary. Summer is typically a time when we don't tend to do as many special issues, but we did do that issue because because of that anniversary. Mm-hmm. And and let's take that one as uh, that issue as an example. Um, that. That, that anniversary has, has popped up in all sorts of different channels. And I'm, I'm very conscious that it's something that has been covered quite well. But and, and obviously, this was in planning months ago. Yes. And we and we knew it would be very covered as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you go into that uh, w- w- with, the, with your senior colleagues, the editor-in-chief, Jake Silverstein, and... And Kathy Ryan, the director of photography, you go into that thinking. So this is this is here is this huge event, which is a huge cultural event. Um, how how are we going to do it? You, and, and presumably you're thinking that it is going to be covered by 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 this publication and this website and this TV show and this this this. So how do you go about sort of finding your own unique way to cover it? Well, I would say that you know. As I, we've discussed, I think, before at other points, and probably as most magazine people would say, the magazine is incredibly collaborative. So we also have a special projects editor, um, Adrian Green, and who, who works on a lot of these special issues, and a lot of our other editors also get involved. Usually these kinds of issues start off with a brainstorm um, that often includes many editors, um, you know, our uh photo team, our design team, um, and people kind of throw out ideas. Um, and we do try to think of interesting ways in that maybe people haven't thought of. So for example, the cover of that issue um, is a piece of jewelry. One of the ways that we thought that could be interesting to cover it was to look at the evolution of jewelry and talk about, you know, the evolution of hip hop through that, um, you know, and or other kinds of interesting projects within that uh you know, including a piece that we did on rap etymology, which is looking at how words have um, been influenced by hip hop culture or language. Um, you know, and also you know, sometimes we think about particular people that have something interesting to say, like the the intro essay is done by Wesley Morris, who's a kind of amazing writer and always has really interesting takes on things. So we we pursue a lot of different, you know, ways to think about these kinds of kinds of issues presumably a lot of things get kind of jettisoned along the way and you're sort of you head off in a direction and then you pull back and yeah yeah and then there's always a kind of thing about access like you know who who could we get to who will be willing to be photographed Uh you know who can we talk to um but yeah there there are a lot of you know we meet a lot we have a lot of different ideas it takes a while to kind of evolve the issue um it's interesting that you talk about access I, i guess 
for a lot of people listening, they might just assume that the New York Times magazine gets what the New York Times magazine wants. Is it not quite that simple? No, it's it's definitely not that simple. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, it's harder. It also depends on like on timing or what the ask is. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that we considered for the issue is, you know, photographing a number of people together. You know, yeah. that, that's quite hard to do based on, you know, who will be photographed with who and also schedules aligning and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, we we are lucky enough to get access to a lot of um, big names or interesting people that are, you know, willing to talk with us. But, um, but you know, it's definitely not a, a given. It's not a guarantee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then you, you, you've done the shoots, you've got all the material, you've got the stories, and then how do you go about, I mean, who, who, who does the designing? Do, do, do you sort of, you have a team of people in the studio and you, you, does it, does it go in rotation between designer X, Y, and Z that they have a go, they have a go, they have a go? How do you actually assign the work? We do take turns um, having lead designers on each issue. Um, one thing, you know, as you mentioned, we have all this like stuff that we, you know, kind of put together. We have photos and writing. I mean, the process of that, we have this incredible photo team, as you mentioned, Kathy Ryan leads it. Um, but the amount of work that goes into something like the, uh, like the um, jewelry photo essay, the kind of coordination of getting all those pieces and photographing them in different locations and the production that goes into that can be kind of intense. Um, So, you know, a lot of times we actually are also kind of designing at the same time as that work is still happening, uh, partially just because of the number of issues uh, that we make. Um, So sometimes the design team is kind of making something speculative um, anticipating what what might come in. Um, in the best case scenario, we've also been able to get out far enough ahead of something that our design has helped kind of dictate what it would be. It's not necessarily always working with what's coming in, but sometimes we're really able to shape what does come in. Um, and more and more, we're we're shooting for that kind of thing. Um, as far as who designs each issue, we we take turns, basically. I don't actually, I don't design any of the special issues anymore. I, I did that for a long time. Uh-huh. Um, but everyone else on the team, um, you know, probably designs normally around two special issues per year. Um, so they're the ones that head it up. Um, ben and I, you know, take turns um, art directing those. Ben Granjanet, who's the uh, magazine's design director. Um, and he often supports or gives a lot of input on many of those special issues. Um, and uh, we try to rotate them in general. So if you've done one issue, like if you've done the New York issue, um, next year, it's probably going to be someone else. Uh, but but to, to go back to the, the hip-hop anniversary, is that the kind of subject where, I mean, yes, it might be this designer's turn to be responsible, but, but on the other hand, you have this other designer who's really into their hip-hop. Yes, that's absolutely taken into consideration. Um, and actually, uh, you know, I've told people on my team uh, that they're welcome to request a story or an issue um, or, you know, just like I want people to be able to work with materials that they're interested in. Um, I can't always guarantee that they might get uh, that, you know, they might not be the first person to ask for it or there might just be some kind of a scheduling conflict with another project 
but I do really try and match people up with topics that they're interested in. Um, so yeah, there, it's kind of a balancing act between, you know, making sure that everyone has a kind of equal opportunity um, and, and, you know, also matching things up with people's uh, natural interests um, and looking at people's strengths um, and how they match up with what needs to be done in, in a particular issue. Talking about people's individual strengths, you know, you, you do, um, you, you always have a very strong team of, of people working with you. Um, and that clearly is part of your role is to, is to, is to maintain the strength of that team. Um, and people come and people go. Uh, Matt Willey was there for several years and did a lot of fantastic typo- typographic work. Some very particular issues come to mind, in terms, like the, the one that um, the one about uh, tall Manhattan. Yeah, life above eight hundred feet. Yeah, yes. yeah, where it turned. Um, but then, but then, someone like that with, with their typographic strength leaves. Do you then sort of fear, sort of go out and think, well, who's going to do the typography? Do I and get another typography specialist? I mean, how how does the chemistry change, and how do you kind of manage that change? Yeah, um, well, I would say that you know Matt's a very um, particular talent in that way, kind of you know making a lot of his own fonts and has a very um, you know specific um, aesthetic. Um, there definitely on the team exists other people that are really good with typography in a different way. Um, but you know, I, as far as the makeup of the team, I don't necessarily look to replace certain skills. Um, uh, I just think that basically the magazine is going to change as the people that work here change. That they just that that part of the interesting thing about the magazine is that it is made up of these people with these different skills and different interests. um, And that kind of pulling those together into this format is what gives it its personality. I mean, there is a kind of basic um, brand idea here and direction pretty clearly, a way that we approach things. But I think that it should be loose enough to uh, accommodate a lot of different kinds of design and ways of thinking um, so in terms of who I look for um, on the team, you know, I'm usually looking for, you know, people who have some of the skills that are really necessary for magazines. Like, like you said, a great typographer, somebody who thinks conceptually, someone who's going to work well with the rest of the team. Um, and I, I oftentimes don't necessarily look for somebody who has a lot of experience designing great magazine spreads. Because I think for me... I'm looking much more for a kind of uh, formal experimentation, um, something maybe that I haven't seen before. Somebody who's pushing to make something different. Um, you know, I think uh, that's more of you know what I'm interested in. And we have some people on the team that do have a good amount of magazine experience. You know, Ben has been with me for um, ten years. <laughs> All of his experience is at. New York Times Magazine, um, but he's amazing. Um, our digital art director, Kate LaRue, um, has worked at a number of magazines. Um, she worked at National Geographic for a while. Um, she's worked at 538 ESPN's blog. Um, so there are people that have that kind of experience, but then there's also a number of people that you know ha- are, ha- came directly out of school 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting going going through this and hearing you talk about how um, it's not necessary to have a great deal of magazine experience because I think I'm right in saying that you didn't arrive at the Times with a huge background in magazines. No, I had no background in, in magazines. <laughs> uh, I had a background in publication design um, and made a lot of art books. Um, I worked at a studio that primarily made art books, but also did identities and uh, you know some digital work um, and signage and other types of things. Um, but I had you know enough experience in telling stories, uh, you know, using imagery and uh, you know typography and things that unfolded over you know pages. Um, that it was somewhat applicable. There was a pretty big learning curve for me. Um, but I had some basic skills that I was able to, you know, work with and and then come and learn the craft of magazine making at the times. Um, I'm assuming that the nature of your personal experience colors the way you look at other potential people you're going to collaborate with. You're, you're interested in not people that are just purely bathed in, 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 in the history of magazines. You want people that are going to bring maybe something slightly unique or fresh or a slightly different thing. Yes. And I actually, it's interesting. I've noticed sometimes that being new to the magazine maybe is an advantage. Uh (laughs) You know, at points you might try something that uh, had you been working here for a long time, maybe you you wouldn't have tried or, um, you know, kind of sometimes not knowing all the rules means that you might, you know, break them in an interesting way that works. So, so your initial experience at the magazine, I think, was was as a sort of freelancer and a, sort of a relatively junior level. Um, but later in 2014, you became design director, which, uh, with my sort of rudimentary maths, it tells me that that's about nine years ago that you that you were t- took charge of the studio. Yeah. Uh, and at 52 issues a year, that's somewhere between 450, 460 individual issues of of this magazine that you have been responsible for. So I imagine with, with that kind of body of experience, it's it can be relatively quick for you to make decisions and sort of have a sense of what's going to work and what's not going to work. But do you find that sort of younger, more inexperienced people, so going back to what you were just saying, do they provide you with a with surprises and pushing you in things that even you, given your experience, can be surprised by? Yeah, absolutely. I think everything that you said is really true. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I do think it's much easier to be decisive, having you know done as much work of this kind as I have. Sometimes I forget that that your experience really allows you to like move fast and um, you know figure out which direction you want to go in. Um, but I I absolutely think that younger people that come in um, bring something really interesting. You know, this is a profession where you need to really keep current on things. Um, and you can't keep making the same thing. Um, otherwise, it will look dated and it will be irrelevant. And so it's been interesting to me to see some of the different um, things that you know younger people bring in, um, you know, different illustrators that they're looking at, um, you know, the way that they're looking at photography or or design. But I think that that is, uh, you know, one of the ways that, the magazine stays fresh, you know, and and if somebody younger or less experienced maybe brings something in, um, I think it's part of the way that we, you know, art direct the magazine uh, that would preserve that, which is that we don't try to, you know, kind of push everything into something that like 
I would have made or maybe Ben would have made. Or what we do is we really look at each layout um, and try to further um, whatever that designer is bringing to it. Just we try to look at it and make it the best version of that, try to make suggestions to push it. The nature of the magazine, that it, it varies enormously. And I think a lot of people who know the magazine know it from seeing the front covers on Instagram. Uh, I mean, above and beyond people that read it on a regular basis in the US, but people beyond the US who maybe don't get to see it on a regular basis. They see the covers, they might see some spreads that have been shared, but that maybe don't know the magazine so well. Can, can you quickly describe the, this coming issue and then, the, and then the next issue and just give us a sense of the difference? Uh, so this weekend's cover story is on Forever Chemicals, um, PFASs, which are chemicals that are used in everyday products um, that repel water and oil and grease and sometimes can withstand heat. So they're used in things like uh, microwave popcorn bags and uh, firemen's jackets, but also they are in all kinds of everyday products like lotion and contacts and makeup and uh so this story is about um, how they've even made their way into the water and, you know, the fish that we eat and all these things and that we don't really understand what they do to us. Um, and so the cover approach was to, you know, photograph a lot of everyday items. Um, Grant Cornett took the photograph. It's kind of a kind of tableau. And then um, we put, you know, type over it um, that basically said, you know, that we don't know what forever chemicals are, are doing to us. It looks a little bit like a, a kind of warning label, but it's a subtle reference. Um, and that's a kind of similar thing that we did on the inside. Um, in terms of the cover for, story for next week, it's actually a really interesting story on tonic immobility, which is um, the idea that there is sometimes a biological response to sexual assault that paralyzes the victim. And, you know, oftentimes... Uh, if victims didn't fight or didn't scream, uh, sometimes that's actually used to discredit them um, and say that it was a consensual encounter or dismiss them. But actually, there's evidence that this is a kind of biologically wired in response. Um, and so this was a hard to art piece. Um, and we decided on a, a quote on the cover because one of the striking things in the piece was the number of times that women said, they couldn't move or they froze. On the inside, we worked with the artist Katrine de Blauer um, to make imagery that, you know, is actually somewhat abstract, aimed at the idea of, you know, freezing or, you know, there's there's part of the piece that talks about how sometimes when a woman is being sexually assaulted, she just focuses on one aspect of the room. Uh, and kind of feels trapped. You know, some of these elements are brought together in the, in the collage treatment, basically. It's somewhat abstract. But it's one of those stories that is, is very hard to to visualize, and, and that's part of the challenge, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we were talking about the hip-hop one, and, and, and as soon as you say hip-hop, there are so many visuals come to mind, and you're spoiled for choice. But then you, you suddenly turn around, and, and you're dealing with these very abstract ideas and trying to visualize that. Yes, that happens a lot. And I would say even um, a cover story that we did like three weeks ago was another story about a sexual assault that happened in a girl's bathroom um, in a school. And we it was a, it was a story that had been distorted um, for political use in a, a fight in politics in Virginia. Um, so we wanted to um, 
really have more documentary photography to, you know, avoid introducing ambiguity into the story, but we weren't able to, you know, get in and photograph the school. We also had to think about being sensitive in terms of how we, it was, it was a sexual assault. So we had to be very careful about how we showed that. Uh, you know, we didn't want to, um, if we couldn't get into the school, we didn't want to go photograph somewhere else (laughs) because of the journalistic issues with that. So, you know, we decided to build a small scale model. Um, We worked with uh, uh, Nixon Gerber um, to make a miniature model of a kind of typical girl's bathroom um, and photograph that. Um, So we, we come across a lot of these, these issues that, are both hard to visualize and sometimes have journalistic issues that we need to deal with. I think we've talked quite a lot about this, the the weekly um, challenges and, and and the ongoing kind of, you know, everything's happening at once and you're planning this issue and there's that issue. At the same time, of course, you've got to be as, as, as creative director as you are now, you have to be able to take a step back and sort of have a look at the bigger picture. Yes. <laughs> And something I'm aware of is, is is that the magazine as a whole has always been very willing to test new directions, playing with um, uh, augmented reality and, and and various aspects of digital storytelling. Um, are these still things that you're actively working on? We do do a lot of experiments. Um, you know, I would say I think the thing that we're most interested in working on right now is. Uh, a kind of um, digital first storytelling. Um, we're doing a lot more of that. Um, it, we're not new to digital. We've definitely been producing a lot of pretty sophisticated uh, digital pieces over the entire time that I've been the design director, creative director. Um, but I think we are approaching them in a slightly different way. We're doing a lot more stuff for mobile. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff that is very visual. um, And that is a kind of different process. So, you know, a lot of our pieces are long form. um, And so that's, you know, going to be a a written through piece that maybe, you know, has art. There's some flexibility in terms of how you art that. But uh, we are also doing things that now are much more driven by the visuals and where the design is really intertwined with those visuals. And we're trying to have a narrative through those visuals. Um, And so that has been... A different process. For example, we did a piece um, with Lindsay Adario um, in the Ukraine. Um, Lindsay often, uh, you know, embeds on the front lines. Um, you know, she's a you know, documents conflict. We, uh, for us, she went and embedded with an eleven-year-old boy who uh, was in the Ukraine, whose mother was a medic. Normally, that would have been a, a kind of a photo essay with still photographs. Um, but we asked her to shoot vertical video and we made a special presentation for mobile um, where there were these composed stills. But then in between, there were also moments of, of video um, with text rolling over them. And I think in that way, it was a very different presentation. Uh, you know, that the writing uh, spoke to those visuals very directly. So, you know, these are different kinds of collaborations with our, you know, visual and edit teams. Um, oftentimes, you know, in order to make those things match up, uh, we are adjusting them as we go. So it's not the same kind of process where we get a written piece and or and we art it. Um, oftentimes we are starting with the visuals and figuring out how to write to that. There's an idea of what the story is going to be. 
Um, but we want to represent the narrative um, somehow through images. But then that sort of takes it to the point where you've created it digitally first. Yes. And then and then you have to work backwards to get it into the print edition. That's right. And that's a pretty interesting challenge. Um, you know, for for the for the piece I just mentioned, it was just um it was the still photography. Um, you know, other pieces we've you know done differently. For example, the rap etymology piece that I just mentioned in our rap issue was a an interactive online that had music and you know, spinning records and mm-hmm. um, was a really nice presentation. And we put a lot of effort into that. And then in the magazine, it was actually uh, a kind of dense, um, bitsier piece um, that was over um, two spreads, I think that added something really nice to the issue. Something that we oftentimes don't do because of our focus on long form. Um, but, you know, it was like, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that in recent years, we've done a lot of stuff that is really you know, long form, or maybe it's, you know, a big photo essay and the less a, a kind of... Um, I, I have it open in front of me and, and it is very, very different Yeah. for the Times magazine. Um, I think it's something we used to do a little more of, but in, in Jake's mm-hmm. magazine, you know, it's been much more literary. Um, we've never done a lot of like, you know, sidebar or dense packed, you know, pieces with bits of text. That's what this is. And I think that comes from it being digital first. Um, and I think this was successful, a very successful uh, kind of uh, experiment in both digital and in print. I think it really adds a lot to the print issue as well. Um, but sometimes we are kind of struggling to figure out, you know, how we're going to satisfy the needs of both things and make them great. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done it to varying success. Um, and, and that's something that we're thinking about a lot moving forward. Mm-hmm. And and when it comes to actually producing the digital side of things, is is this? I mean, is is this another department at the Times, or, or are you producing these things in in your studio as part of the um, the weekly weekly work? It is um, produced by um, the same team, um, and that you know, uh, we recently decided. We, I, I mentioned that we have a digital art director. We recently. Um, within the past couple of years, have had everyone working on interactives. So the team is a hybrid team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, those interactives are made by uh, different members of the team, um, which I think has been really interesting. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is, um, you know, what is a magazine online? Something that people have asked for a long time. Certainly not the first person to think about that. But... Um, but I think for us, one of the things that it is, um, one of the things that makes it magazine is the kind of craft that we bring to it. Um, and so it's been interesting to have, you know, the same people that are making the print magazine, which is very crafted, also do uh, some of the interactives. Um, you know, uh, um, our digital art director also brings a very sophisticated sense of what's possible online and kind of integrating those things, um, you know, has been has been interesting, and I think we've made some some stuff that I'm really proud of. And uh, to what extent are they actually building things? I mean, are, are they are they working with Figma and then handing over to a, a developer, or are they actually coding themselves? We have a, a developer, uh, uh, Jackie Mint, um, who's been working with the magazine for quite some time. She's amazing. Uh, the people on the team actually work in Figma, um, and then she codes it. 
I mean, this is part of your role. So in addition to overseeing the print designs, you're now overseeing these these digital directions. Yes, um, that has been part of the job since uh, since I became design director. So um, we before that, we actually did work um, with a team within the Times. Um, and, uh, you know, we would kind of pitch stories to them to see if they were interested in making an interactive out of it. Um, yeah, and about nine years ago, we did... Um, decide to uh you know bring that onto our team we we used to work actually with a developer um from a team within the times as well um but over the years we've kind of branched off and we really do our own thing um although more recently we have been doing a lot of collaborations um with different groups within the times um you know based on their different kinds of expertise and bringing different things to our issues mm-hmm. yeah and do you enjoy the digital side yeah, I really love it. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, I've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, and um, I think there's a really interesting challenge. Uh, you know, I've enjoyed, I think th- we've had our approach has evolved a lot, you know, um, our approach to special issues, our approach to, you know, desktop versus mobile. Um, but I think there's really exciting possibilities uh, to be had, you know, in designing for mobile. Um, in telling stories in, you know, different ways, using these kind of assets, you know, using video, using sound. Um, I just think, I, I do think it's a, it's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, where does that, uh, this take us then? So at the, the, the moment, uh, I mean, we talked, you, you explained how that there are some stories that are created for digital and have to be kind of um, sort of backtracked into print. Um, I mean, are we, are we looking then at a time? Well, if, if we jump five years forward, what 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 is the New York Times magazine going to be then? I mean, is it going to be primarily digital? I wish I knew exactly what it was going to be five years from now. Um, <laughs> I think that's one of the exciting things about what's happening right now. I mean, we are definitely going to have a very robust digital first presence, and there will also still be a print magazine. Um, we are starting on a redesign right now. Um, when we redesigned in 2015, uh, there was a mission to kind of make the magazine feel more literary. Um, you know, and oftentimes a magazine is about a lot about the redesign of the front of book. So, you know, our front of book is really a series of short essays. Um, I think this time around, our front of book will be a kind of digital first thing that we then convert into print and probably will be something more visual. And I'm excited about the kind of uncertainty of the way that we will take these ideas that we think will function really well online and make them um, into a print front of book, I think that could end up having some pretty exciting and unexpected results. Um, But I I think in general, we'll be doing in both mediums what the magazine does best. We'll be doing long-form stories. We'll be doing big, ambitious visual projects. We'll be covering a huge variety of topics. Uh, And in whatever medium you experience the magazine, craft will be a constant in the writing, in the visuals, and in the design. Gail, thank you so much for joining us and updating us on uh, what the future holds for the magazine. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's It's been fun to talk. Thanks to Gail Bickler and Rob Orchard for their contributions to the episode. Despite working in very different parts of the magazine industry, they clearly both love making their magazines. And rather than being dimmed by time, the length they've spent producing delayed gratification in the New York Times magazine seems only to have increased their enthusiasm for the form. They both highlighted collaboration in magazine making, and it was clear they both loved the craft, 
editorially and design-wise, involved in the detailing of magazines. That craft is something the digital world has struggled with. I still wince at the clash of editorial design and technology that saw off the idea of the iPad magazine around 10 years ago. If there's anybody out there that might help transfer that attention to detail from magazine to mobile, it is surely Gail Bickler. So I look forward to seeing what the next iteration of the New York Times magazine holds. So thanks to both our guests, thanks to Park for their support, and thanks to you for listening. See you soon.